You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes. Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise in Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and let's start today by covering another case suggestion by a Rise in Crime listener. This one is out of El Paso, where a three-year-old died in a drowning accident at a new water park in Texas. Now, the city of El Paso, the residents had passed a bond to build four water parks in the city limits. It was part of a quality of life initiative to make living in El Paso even more enjoyable and fulfilling for the residents. The city had planned in 2023 to perform a soft opening on Mother's Day weekend before actually opening the park for the summer two weeks later. Jessica Weaver and her three-year-old son, Anthony Malave, attended the soft opening on May 13th, and Anthony went about playing in the splash pool. At some point, Jessica lost track of Anthony. Eventually, the lifeless body of the three-year-old was pulled from the pool, and lifeguards began measures to save little Anthony. As lifeguards worked to use a mask to start CPR, EMS was called and arrived within four minutes of placing the call. Anthony was then transported to the hospital, but he was pronounced dead the next morning. Now, it's at this point you're probably saying, Mama Jules, why are you bringing a drowning story to us? And guess what? I get it. These stories are so common and it's incredibly unfortunate. In fact, this is the most common form of death for kids ages one to four years. But it's not the drowning that's unusual here. It's the steps Jessica took and then the responsive steps of the city that we're looking into. Okay, just days after Anthony's drowning, Jessica offered an interview to the local CBS News affiliate, CBS4, where a very composed Jessica squarely places the blame for her son's death on the staff of Camp Cohen, saying they weren't trained. Here, I'll let you listen to that audio. I had the soft opening to get their operations going, but it, it cost my son because they weren't ready. They weren't ready for a drowning. They weren't ready for the response. Trying to save children. And I, and I understand, you know, they're, li- they're young lifeguards. 
but at least have someone who who's done this before you you train them to do this but it's different to be trained and to actually go through a situation now three things here I think people need to understand that lifeguards are not the first defense. Parents are. Secondly, these lifeguards are trained to use a mask fitted over the child's mouth to offer resuscitation. Jessica's frustration, well, it might be valid that the mask wasn't fitting properly to her young son. And third, the comments that flooded in on this video as it was shared on Facebook, they're brutal. Multiple claims that Jessica was on her phone making TikTok videos while her son is drowning. And I have no idea if that's true, but I'm sure it's going to come out because Jessica went on to file suit against the city of El Paso and the company running the park saying that Camp Cohen held some responsibility in her son's death. Now, the suit, which was filed about a month after Anthony's drowning, stated that rather than ensuring that guests were safe, the water park was too concerned with packing in customers and ensuring that the live band was playing. The suit also claims that even before the water park opened, safety was not a priority. The suit cites a news article from the El Paso Times in February of the previous year. So yeah, that's 2022, saying the city was looking to hire lifeguards for the four new water parks. Now the suit says the wording is the issue here because the article states that a lifeguard needs no experience and only needs to be 16 year old or older to apply. Now, the suit also claims that not enough lifeguards were available at the soft opening and that the park didn't properly warn customers of the dangers involved in visiting the establishment. Now, I watched a video of a city official where he is saying that lifeguards are needed for the four new parks. And in that video, he says lifeguards don't even need to be that great of swimmers that the training provided by the city will be enough for new lifeguards to perform their duties. Yeah, it wasn't the greatest of looks, but in some situations at the water park, it's actually probably accurate. Not all the pools are deep. Some are designed specifically for small children, and a 16-year-old could easily stand up in those pools and near those slides. Now, the suit claims that Jessica is suffering mental anguish, and the anguish will continue in the future. Along with the anguish and loss of companionship from the death of Anthony, the suit is also asking for funeral and burial expenses to be covered. And I'm sure the city and the company that runs the four water parks were not thrilled about the civil suit and the bad press that comes along with it. And in what some are calling an act of retaliation, specifically, Jessica's attorney is calling it an act of retaliation. Well, they're saying that that act of retaliation is Jessica being arrested in Indiana on charges of injury to a child in the drowning death of her son, Anthony. Now, the arresting warrant states that on May 13th, the day Anthony died, the El Paso Police Department's Crimes Against Persons and the Crimes Against Children Division initiated a comprehensive investigation in order to figure out what exactly happened in the drowning death of Anthony. The warrant states that investigators were able to establish a detailed account of the events leading up to the unfortunate outcome, and it was determined that the child's death resulted from neglectful and careless actions of his mother and a failure to care for the child properly. So U.S. Marshals, 
took her into custody on August 30th, and she is currently in the Elkhart County Correctional Complex in Indiana. And remember, Indiana is Jessica's home state, so that's why she's there. Now, District Attorney Bill Hicks held a press conference on Tuesday where he explained that Jessica failed to tend to Anthony properly and that her ignoring the child resulted in her being charged with the first-degree felony. He said several witnesses have come forward since the drowning at Camp Cohen, and they're asserting they saw her not paying attention to Anthony. He also clarified that the investigation took this long because they were getting the private videos from that day showing the scene before the drowning. He then went on to say in that statement that lifeguards are not babysitters and that parents should pay close attention to their children at city pools. Well, the verbal war continued because now Jessica's lawyer, Ryan McLeod, is saying that the El Paso district attorney should be charging the 17 young lifeguards for the death and not his client, Jessica. McLeod is also saying that life jackets were only available on a first-come, first-served basis and that no outside flotation devices were allowed in the park. He reiterated that on the day of Anthony's death, that the lifeguards did not know how to do their jobs and that they also did not know how to offer life-saving measures to the three-year-old. He then made the point that children die at private residence all the time, and those parents aren't charged in those deaths, saying this charge is purely retaliation for the $1 million lawsuit that Jessica filed against the city. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to assign a motive for the city of El Paso or even for Jessica, but a quick internet search did show that homeowners can and have been held liable for the deaths of children in their swimming pools. So his statement about charges not being filed in some accidental drownings at private residences, well, that's just not really completely accurate. Okay, he does go on and say that more than a dozen officers stormed into the Indiana home, yelling that Jessica was a fugitive from the law. He contends that since they had no idea charges would even be filed or that they were even pursuing that possibility, how could Jessica be a fugitive? He also says that the district attorney is playing a political stunt by leaving Jessica in the Indiana Correctional Facility instead of extraditing her immediately to Texas. Again, maybe he is pulling a political stunt, but I'm not going to assign that to him. The law does say that he has 30 days to move Jessica from Indiana to Texas since she has waived her rights to extradition. All right, finally, one thing that needs to be answered in this case is that the pool facility did have security cameras installed and the video was available at one point showing that particular day when Anthony died. However, shortly following the incident, the video was somehow destroyed, and it's not available for either side to use in the civil suit or in the now new criminal charges. The civil suit is carrying forward, and depositions are slated for later this month with the Camp Cohen site manager and the director of the water park operations. But lost in all of this is little Anthony. Two funerals were held for Anthony, and he was remembered for loving to be outside and that his favorite movie was Coco Melon. He was the only child of Jessica's, and it does appear that his father was not involved in his life. Now, a GoFundMe was established for his memory and specifically to pay for his body to be moved to Indiana for burial. Just over $4,500 was raised before the fund was shut down. So I'll be watching this one and I'll let you know when I know. 
All right, let's head to Alabama, where an 18-year-old has been sentenced for his murder conviction of his entire family. We've got to jump back to 2019, where Mason Sisk lived in Limestone County, Alabama with his father, John, his stepmother, Mary, and his three younger half-siblings, six-year-old Kane, four-year-old Aurora, and six-month-old Colson. Now, despite seeming to be a normal 14-year-old boy, you know, what's normal at 14, but he seemed to be a pretty normal 14-year-old boy who at times really enjoyed his family. Pictures show that he is enjoying his family. But in 2019, some disturbing behaviors were emerging from Mason. On one morning, Mason added some peanut butter to his stepmother's coffee. Okay, this appeared to be a deliberate attempt to poison her since Mary had a severe allergy to peanuts. And Mason had also been forceful with his younger siblings, especially his brother, Kane. Court documents said he had anger control issues when it came to his family. He also stole two rings from his stepmother just to give them away to friends. He then stole a gun from his grandmother's house. And Mason's cousin told WVLT that Mason had just learned in 2019 that Mary was his stepmother and not his biological mother, which appeared to cause a lot of angst in the 14-year-old. The cousin also said that Mason had been accused of vandalizing his school and that he had been known to burn small animals alive. Well, all of these behaviors culminated into a night of horror on September 2nd of 2019. Mason Sisk systematically murdered his father, his stepmother, and his three siblings by shooting them in the head while they slept. Then after several hours at about 1.15 in the morning, Mason called 911 and said that he heard gunshots in his home. When officers arrived, they found the gruesome scene and they began asking Mason questions about what he knew. He initially said that he was in the basement playing video games when he heard the gunshots upstairs. But Limestone County Sheriff Mike Blakely began asking further questions when he felt that Mason's story just wasn't adding up. The sheriff had placed Mason in his truck while officers investigated the scene. And despite trying to get in touch with Mason's next of kin, they were unable to reach anyone. Remember, it was the middle of the night. And in 2019, most people only use a cell phone for communication. I mean, let's be honest. Most of us silence our phones at night. Well, after having no success, the sheriff took the 14-year-old to the police station, initially treating him as a witness and not really as a suspect. Video of the encounter shows Mason picking at his skin and shoulders, clearly agitated. As Sheriff Blakely asks him more questions, it becomes clear that the information Mason is providing is really not adding up. Sheriff Blakely goes into full investigative mode at this point and starts rapidly firing questions at Mason about his family and what he saw. Sheriff Blakely also tells Mason, if he tells the truth, he will be much better off. Well, that kind of gets to Mason, and he starts to break, and he says that his family was having issues, but that he, and this is his words, he said, I didn't do anything with it. I didn't kill my parents. I didn't kill my brother and sister. Well, after more and more questioning by the sheriff, Mason sighs deeply and whispers that he was fed up with the fighting. And then he said, yeah, I killed them. Mason even tells the sheriff where he dumped the gun. Investigators found that gun in the exact side of the road area that Mason had said it would be located. 
And despite Sheriff Blakely asking several more questions like, where did you get the gun? Or how did you manage to kill all five of your family members? Mason's just exhausted and he starts to shut down and just says that he didn't want the kids to grow up in a family that was always fighting and that he intended to go upstairs and shoot them all. Now, I know this is a lightning rod issue for true crime followers. Should Mason have been asked all of these questions when he's only 14 years old, he's sleep deprived, and he's clearly traumatized from the night's events? It's such a load of heavy questions about should this have actually happened? But five people are dead. I'll just let you guys hash it out in the comments because to be honest, I don't really have an answer here. I will tell you. This next four years are full of court hearings and motions. There was a removal of a defense attorney because that attorney was running for district attorney. Then there's a removal of a judge because the judge was about to retire. Then there's the jailing of Sheriff Blakely. Yeah, the guy doing the interview. He got jailed for unrelated burglary charges. And then there's all of the arguments about whether Mason should be tried as an adult. There's also the defense challenges about whether the confessions should remain in evidence. And there's even a mistrial in September of 2022. The mistrial resulted just days after the trial started because the FBI was finally able to unlock Mary. You know, that's the stepmom. They were able to unlock Mary's cell phone, and that evidence needed to be reviewed by both the defense and the state. Well, ultimately, a new trial was held in April. The confession video did remain in evidence, and jurors were able to see the confession from the night of the murders, including Mason admitting to calling his girlfriend before actually calling 911. And the cell phone, it did offer some additional evidence, but the graphic evidence of the bodies, the gun evidence that was provided, and mainly Mason's behavior that led up to that point... Well, eventually that led the jury to only deliberate for two hours before handing down their verdict of guilty. Then on Thursday, Circuit Judge Chadwick Wise sentenced Mason to life in prison without parole. Even though Alabama does have the death penalty, it was determined through several hearings that life in prison without parole would be the harshest sentence that could be given to Mason. Now, upon handing down the sentence, Judge Wise told the courtroom that the crime was ghastly, disturbing, and draped in unmitigated evil. And Limestone County District Attorney Brian C.T. Jones said in a written statement that he had prosecuted a lot of people in his career and that all of those people, Mason, is at the top of the list for those who scare the hell out of him. He also noted that Mason Sisk is clearly one of the most dangerous people who will ever be sentenced in Limestone County. All right, on a personal note, Mary's mother, Denise Pratter, told AL.com that the family decided to just love Mason, despite what he had been charged with. She then offered advice saying, love your children. You never know when you're not going to see them anymore. At the funeral, there were only four caskets because Colson, the six-month-old, was buried in his mother's arms. Denise said the family chose this because on the night of the murders, Mary was holding Colson when Mason shot both of them in the head while they slept. Now those in attendance included over 100 bikers who belonged to John's Motorcycle Club, and then some of Mary's special education students. 
Denise said she took the most gratification from hearing about how Mary had truly made a difference as a teacher. She said she hugged each one of those students and told them to not be afraid. She assured them Mary was in a better place. And now to just a quick update on eight passengers YouTuber, Ruby Frankie. On Friday, Ruby and her business partner, Jody Hildebrand, each took their turn via live stream in a St. George, Utah courtroom in front of Judge Eric Gentry. Ruby and Jody are each charged with six counts of felony child abuse. They were arrested when Ruby's emaciated 12-year-old son, Russell, escaped Jody's home and ran to a neighbor's home, asking them for food and help. The 911 call placed by one of Jody's neighbors has now been released. Let's listen to just a portion of that about 12-minute phone call. Tell me exactly what's happened. I just had a 12-year-old boy show up here at my front door asking for help. And he's uh, said he just came from a neighbor's house, and we know there's been problems at this neighbor's house. He's emaciated. He's got tape around his legs. He's hungry and he's thirsty. He says he just left through the porch at the neighbor's house. Um, her name is Jody Hildebrand, and she lives two doors up the street. Yeah, out here in Cayenne, the houses are far apart, so he walked just under a block to get to our house. He, he rang my doorbell and asked me to call the police. He says he uh, what's happened to him is his fault. That's not a problem. That's not a problem. Oh dear. They're coming to you as quick as they can, okay? Okay, yeah. Really yeah he's, I just want to make sure. He's fine. If I'd let him sit in here, my wife, he got him water and something to, giving him something to eat because he's really, he's hungry and uh, I think the young man, he's, having, he's here in his stocking feet. Uh, so he, he escaped. Well, I'm glad that he was able to make it to on their way. he could be safe. Jody Hildebrand is up there right now. So she may come looking for him here soon, but uh, he's not going to, obviously. All right, we need the cops here as soon as possible. I'm just asking where he is now. Yeah, she's a, uh, she's a bad lady. We didn't realize how bad. It is so heartbreaking to hear the emotion that this man is experiencing while he is trying to help young Russell. And it's also very foretelling that the 911 caller says that Jody Hildebrandt is a bad woman. He just didn't realize how bad. Also, whatever is going on with Russell, the fact that a 12-year-old boy thinks he deserved to be tied up is so telling of the manipulation and abuse that has been happening to him. So what did we learn before the hearing on Friday? Well, we now know that there were actually six kids in the Washington County home that belonged to Jody Hildebrandt. And original reports seem to only indicate that Russell and his younger sister were being held there. Now, we also know that the affidavit contends that Ruby was aware of all six children being in that home and that she has responsibility in the abuse of her two children, along with Jody even though it was Jody's home. Like, she doesn't get the excuse of, I wasn't there because she's filmed videos there and her kids are there. 
Now, we also understand that only Ruby's two children are part of the six abuse counts. The three individual ways the abuse occurred are first count, a combo of multiple physical injuries or torture. Second count, starvation or malnutrition that jeopardizes life. And the third count, causing severe emotional harm. Now, in Utah, the virtual hearing was live streamed, and it allowed for people to actually join the stream. Well, the stream eventually crashed on Friday when over 1,000 people and several news outlets tried to watch. The hearings were delayed because of all of the technical snafus, but eventually the judge ruled that Jody and Ruby would remain in jail without bail. Both their lawyers say they will fight that ruling. And in another twist in this case, Ruby appeared virtually in a family court hearing on Thursday. Now, during that hearing, Ruby made shocking claims that one of her minor children had sexually abused their sibling and also had molested several other family members and children in the neighborhood over the years. She also claimed that the children played a patting game with each other, but she didn't really explain what that was. She also said the sexual abuse between siblings eventually became mutual. Now, the judge in the child welfare case said the abuse allegations would be handled at a different time and that the child who Ruby alleges abused others should actually not be housed with any other children. Now, at this hearing, it was the first time we've seen Ruby's husband and the children's father. His name's Kevin. He never spoke in the hearing or to media after the Thursday court session. It is still unclear if he is living in the Springville home the family once shared. It's also unclear how much connection or actual marriage was still happening between the two. Now, this is absolutely not over. If you want a more in-depth telling of Ruby's bizarre and potentially abusive parenting techniques and her new business venture with Jody, you can listen to episode 37 of Rise and Crime that came out about a week ago. Well, that's your Monday episode of Rise and Crime. I always appreciate your case suggestions and your five-star reviews. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok, and also please subscribe to the YouTube channel. Join me again on Thursday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there.